The stories of some of the world's greatest women unfold here. I am Annette Comer, your host, and each week, the untold secrets of success, strength, and boldness of today's powerful women are revealed. Today's woman grew up in a military family and learned early how to be disciplined and structured. In her world, one worked before one played, and everyone pitched in to help each other, even when you didn't feel like it. She was tough, competitive, and smart, and by the age of 21, she had her master's in business and was well on her way. She became a leader and started her own business, teaching others how to maximize their productivity. But then one day, not long ago, her son committed suicide, and her need to address wrongs became her passion. And today, she walks a path to greatness by giving meaning to her loss and other people's losses. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Laura Stack. Hi, Laura. Thank you for joining me today. Hello. Hello. Thank you, Annette. What a very kind introduction. I appreciate that. Oh, you're so very welcome. And I'm so excited to have you with me today, Laura. So let's get, let's get started because we're a little bit short on time. So as a leader, you have often used your strength of organization to lead. How has this skill made the act of leading easier for you? Wow. So many things are easier through organization, Annette. It allows you to not have to think about what to do next. I think that's the primary advantage. As leaders, we have so many projects, so many deadlines, commitments, demands, and too many people are stuck feeling overwhelmed, overloaded, and saying to themselves, okay, what's next? And when you're faced with 117 different things that you could do, all seemingly of the same importance, without really a predictable way to make decisions, disorganization really becomes the bane of a leader's existence. So I think that when you have that foundation in place, you have your time structured, you have your goals laid out, you have your monthly, weekly, daily plans, you've already created a roadmap for the day. It certainly makes execution of your day easier, being able to say next, 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 and just being able to do the next important thing without really having to think about it. So it allows more automatic decision-making, knowing that you are making the most valuable use of your time in that moment. So I'm going to dig just a little bit deeper on that, Laura. So the trick to that being organized is, I have found, is, is taking the time to put the systems in place. Because without systems, we get really disjointed in our organization. Do you agree with that? There certainly must be systems. That's a big piece of it, not knowing what software to use, what technology, what apps, what platforms, and understanding what the right fit is for you. But it's also understanding your patterns in the way that you interact with your systems. You can have the perfect system um, that is very organized and you spend a lot of time organizing the system. However, that execution could be uh, poorly disciplined, could not have um, the right choices. 
You could procrastinate on doing what's next, even though your system tells you to. There are a lot of things that can go wrong in the use of a system. So they have to be aligned, don't they? Absolutely. It's kind of like, don't fool yourself. Well, that's a big part of it, but also (laughs) being aware of what your habits are and what your behaviors are. If you tend to lean toward the thing that's the most fun, we realize our emotions aren't always the best judge of what should be done next. Uh, Mm. Perhaps you respond to things as they happen. You're more of a reactive person, or maybe you like to do what people want you to do because you're trying to be nice, not necessarily what is the highest priority. So there are so many pieces that are are downfalls, regardless of how organized our systems may be. Yeah, very good point. Excellent. I love that perspective. So you've led into my next question beautifully. So people are more willing to help and follow you if you're likable. So what do you see as the difference between being likable and wanting to be liked? And is one more powerful than the other? Huh. Well, I mean, certainly people will follow people who aren't likable. I mean, a lot of examples (laughs) come to mind of uh, leaders in the past who were not likable. I think it is easier to follow someone who is likable. I don't have a need to be liked, but I like to attempt to form that relationship where it's more than just a leader-follower relationship. I just think you go farther if you form that bond with someone and take a few minutes to get to know them. I've seen many leaders, as I'm sure you have, who are all business and they just come in and right? And they just kind of, here's what I want and here's what I need by when I need it. And rather than taking the time to connect How was your evening? How's your mom doing? Understanding what's happening in the family. Listening to someone and asking them questions about their life automatically makes you likable. It's just, it's not hard to do. I don't think you have to have um, necessarily the most bubbly, friendly personality if that's not you, but it's easy to ask somebody about themselves and their lives. I do think people are more willing to give you more discretionary effort if you're friends. I really like to become friends with the people with whom I work so that it's more of a partnership and more of a relationship when they really genuinely believe that you like them and care about them. I think they do go an extra mile for you and are willing to do things that they otherwise might not have if they didn't like you. Yeah, and I think that's great. And I think that one thing I will say to that is that when people focus only on being liked, it becomes very uh, self-centered. But when they work to be likable, they tend to be a little more other-centered is what I have found. Have you seen that as well? Well, and if you're talking about yourself, you're obviously not asking about them. (laughs) Right, right. I try to remember that if my mouth is running, that I'm not listening to them and just try to really be focused on the person. Now, this one's a little backwards because you're asking me questions, but... But I hear what you're saying. Yeah. 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 Normally, you want to consciously make sure that you're participating in that kind of two-way dialogue instead of me, me, me asking you, you, you. And I think you'll go a lot farther in being liked that way. I think you're exactly right. So... One thing you had told me when we had an earlier conversation is that you feel like you have really thick skin. 
not meaning that you need more moisturizer, but that you that you don't really pay attention to mean people and bullies. For so many, this is hard to ignore. What is your secret to letting it bounce off of you? Mm, that's an interesting question. I, I vaguely remember saying that to you, and I'm trying to remember the context. But I think when you when you put yourself out there as a leader, especially when you're in the public eye, if you're if you have a large platform, if you give speeches as I do, if you write books as I do, you have to be ready for the shots uh, because they will come. And if you don't want to take shots, if you don't want to have people take shots at you, don't put yourself out there because they will come and you have to be able to let them deflect off you. It's not that I don't take feedback because I believe feedback is a gift when it's legitimate and it's in the right context and requested from the right source. But there are many things that people will say to you because They either feel intimidated, they disagree, and they simply don't know how to express disagreement productively. Uh, Perhaps they're just trying to get your goat. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of reasons that people will say things that many might react to. I tend to not let it bother me. I do have a pretty thick skin. You know, I, I have the attitude of, you know, bring it on. And I think that is born more of a conviction of what I believe. And what I say to be true, based on experience, based on research, based on knowledge, you know, if you go out there and refute everything everyone says without any basis, well, then you're either being ignorant or arrogant. And I don't want to be either of both. But when you have conviction and believe in what you say, and you can back it up based on your experience, then for me, it's kind of fun. I like a good banter. I like a back and forth conversation when someone truly wants to engage in a dialogue and not simply be insulting because then you know that they're just trying to put you down to make them feel better about themselves. And I really disengage from those types of conversations. And I don't go to bed feeling bad about myself. I just kind of say a prayer for the other person and (laughs) hope that they have a better day. (laughs) It's kind of like what we call bless and release. (laughs) One of my interviewees said that she blesses and releases. I said, oh, that's a good one. I like that one. That's a good one. (laughs) That's a very good one. Great. So there was a point in time when you tried to do everything yourself. And certainly many women listening have Mm -hmm. maybe find themselves in that place now. But today, you're more of a master delegator. So what prompted the change and what advice would you give to other businesswomen listening? Oh, that's an easy one. You know, especially when you start out, if you own a business or you're a a new leader, there is a tendency, I think, to try to get everything done, to try to do it all yourself, to say, oh, I can't bother Annette with this. It will just take me a second. And really not being able to say no to tasks that are either not your level, uh, that other people are perfectly capable of doing for you, that you're not delegating because you're worried someone will screw it up. I mean, there's myriad reasons that we continue to do things that we should not be doing. But when you finally see your calendar with just one giant blue blur of unavailability and you begin to feel burned out, you learn pretty quickly how to delegate. 
I've become much better at it over the years. I think my tendency to try to do it all myself is born of a bit of a perfectionistic <laughs> quality that I have tried um, to <laughs> overcome over the years. I'm now pretty good at saying, you know, could someone else do this 80% as well as I can? And of course, the answer is yes. I think that that's our unrealistic expectation of ourselves that, of course, only I can do it perfectly because, you know, my way is the right way. And once you start to realize how well other people do things, when you just say, here's where we are and here's where I'd like to be and get out of the way, I've been so pleased so many times by how creative people can be, how their solutions are frequently much better (laughs) than what I would have come up with. And how it lends itself to your sanity, you know, very simple things to very complex things. I, I wish I would have gotten a bookkeeper sooner, right? (laughs) I I have an MBA. I know how to enter receipts in QuickBooks. You know, that doesn't mean that I should be doing that. There are other people who can do that, relieve that burden from me and free up time to do other things that are more strategic and have a much higher return on investment, especially if you're in business. So you do have to ask yourself quite frequently, why am I doing this? And (laughs) should I be the one who does this? And can I get someone else? Because there are many things that you can hire other people to do. And that allows you to do what you are uniquely capable and competent to do. And I think that's where you should spend your focus. Well, and I think that people that are perfectionists, because it sounds like you could be a little bit of a recovering perfectionist yourself. So when people are perfectionists, they want it all done right. But someone told me one time, but I've never forgotten that unless you're doing surgery, it's okay to be an 80% gal. <laughs> and I thought, okay, or that's, that's plain or <laughs> yeah, yeah, something I mean, like that. Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> going life or death. Yeah, that's true. And, and I thought, okay, that's good. You know, so certain aspects of the business, if they're not perfect, it's, Nothing's going to change on the bottom line. Nothing, right. Nobody's going to die. That's a good it's gonna, point. It's going to irritate me just a little bit, but if I don't look, it'll be better. You know, <laughs> so. nice. And they're probably more gifted and more efficient, and it ends up being a better return. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, being competitive and tough are, are part of who you are, Laura. Were you born this way or was there something that made you this way? <laughs> competitive <laughs> and tough. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I guess I I never used to think of myself as competitive because I wasn't like in sports or, you know, those, those types of activities, but I don't like to lose. That's kind of, I guess the opposite of being competitive and losing what I, you know, it's really me (laughs) carrying myself against myself. I, I hold myself to a pretty high standard. I want to succeed in anything that I do. And I think That was born probably more of my upbringing, a little bit of my personality, probably a bit of my parents. They're both PhDs and they had very high standards and uh, we were, it was very strict. You know, when the colonel said, jump, you said how high, Uh, there was a lot of structure, a lot of discipline, but I could see the benefits that would come out of that. You mentioned in my introduction, having an MBA at 21, it doesn't mean I was smarter than anyone else. I just wanted to beat others because for me, that was my own gauge of, I know I can, and I can do this. So I'm going to do it to prove to myself that I can. So it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, just 
how well you can plan, how well you can prepare, how well can you manage your time? And these were always curiosity questions for me. Is this something that I could do if I applied myself, if I were really disciplined? So being able to answer those own questions of yourself, internal drive to be your best, is it competitive? Yeah, you know, I wanted to meet my goals. And so I don't look at it as comparing myself to others. In other words, I didn't leave the classroom and go, ha ha, you were 22 when you left. But one that I, I did this on my own, I accomplished it, I won. And that feeling of accomplishment, I think is what really drives me. Um, you have to be careful because then it means, well, do you celebrate winning? Do you always have to have another goal? Do you always have to beat that? Do you always have to be better and better? And I think that those change as you go on and get older and move farther along in your career, our goals change. But I still feel such a, a great blessing by the things that life has brought to me. And I feel in many ways, my God-given path, these accomplishments were more of things that were laid in front of me to take up and not knowing at the time where they would take me. I think, you know, we have to sometimes look around and say, thank you, God, for all of these blessings in my life that you've allowed me to be able to do. And so that's part of that responsibility, I think, is to fulfill that mission. Yeah, yeah. And I think I loved your analysis of competitive, because when you are a very driven individual, as you and I both are, Laura, that <laughs> uh, then there is the competition is not in the normal framework of what people think. It's not mm -hmm. comparing ourselves. It's, it's right. all this internal drive of nobody needs to correct us. We self-correct very easily. That's true. And I don't gloat over beating someone. I, I don't even know what that means. I don't make those types of comparisons, but I right. know whether or not I believe that I met my goals and did my best. Right, right. And that's a healthy place to stay in because when you start comparing yourself to others, it's a slippery slope. True. It's a it's it's not a path to happiness no, for sure. It's not, it's not joyful either. No, it's not. There's no joy at all. <laughs> so I'm going to go into a, a little bit of a personal space. You lost your son not long ago, a loss so deep I can't even imagine. No. Yet you are using this loss to champion awareness in hopes of preventing someone else's loss. How can others who have deep losses turn them toward a sense of purpose? Wow. Well, yes, Johnny died. In November of 2019, by suicide, he used very heavy uh, marijuana concentrate products and developed uh, psychosis, sadly, and believed the mob was after him and the FBI thought he was a terrorist and he died in an incident uh, related to his psychosis. Obviously, tragic, um, very sad. I would don't want you to imagine it. It's horrible. But, right. you know, Johnny's number one value was altruism. He just really wanted to help other people. And when he died, I remember thinking, well, we have to continue to help him help other people because his statement to me three days before he died was, you told me marijuana was going to mess up my mind. And I want you to know you were right. It's ruined my mind and my life. And I'm sorry. And I love you. So to me, that warning, um, sorry, it's That's okay. This is a touchy subject. Yeah. You know, that warning deep. is something that I feel. Um, what's the right word? Not obligated, obsessed, <laughs> obsessed um, about sharing with others because I think so many parents who were like me didn't really understand how dangerous 
the products were today and how highly potent and different they were from when we were kids in the 60s, 70s, 80s, smoking Woodstock weed, you know, 2% THC, and now they can be upwards of nearly pure. And so I feel very passionate, compelled, obligated to, to share that with other parents to keep them from having to, to go through this. So that's what I would say to other people who are uh, in grief, you know, to really uh, think about what is the lesson behind this that I can peel back, um, that I can share, because what I do know for sure is that it has helped with my healing process. You know, I could have stayed in bed and in a ball and cried for months, which I did, and and uh, or I could have decided to to get out of bed and and do something about it. So I chose the latter, and I believe that our mission now with our 501c3 Johnny's Ambassadors will really educate parents and teens on the dangers of high THC marijuana on adolescent brain development and psychosis and suicide. And for me, everything I've done up until now has been the platform for this mission. And this has become uh, the new thing that I will dedicate the rest of my life to doing. And that's what's got you on a path to greatness, my dear. For sure. For sure. So, Laura, is there anything about your journey to greatness that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with other women? Oh, wow. You know, I'm realizing more than ever just with my son's death and our remaining, you know, two children who uh, one just our daughter got engaged and our, our son is very happy at CSU, you know, just the importance of time with family and spending time with the people that you love, not getting so caught up in your career. You never know, um, literally, when it will be the last time you see your loved one. And I think this chaotic uh, time in my life has led us to really, really treasure and value that time with people we love and to refocus on them and just to be very present with the people that are right in front of you instead of always looking outside. And I think that timing of um, how much time you spend really does matter, really is about the quantity and the quality of time and also taking some time to take care of yourself. That's been very, very important lately with self-care versus that's kind of easy to brush aside, take care of yourself, take care of your family, your friends, the people uh, you really love. That brings you a lot of joy, I think more so than any year I ever made a killing in business. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny how we have to have certain things to help us see that, isn't it? True. Very true. Yeah. Laura, it has been such a pleasure having you with me today. Thank you for being open with your knowledge and your wisdom and being vulnerable as you express the different challenges as you've moved through your life. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for the delightful interview. Thank you for um, asking me. I feel a little uh, like intimidated being called a great woman, but I hope anything that I had to say today was uh, helpful to someone listening. So I have no doubt. So Laura is another great example of how women are challenging the norm, making things happen and demanding their own greatness. So join me next time on the World's Greatest Women Show as another powerful woman story unfolds. 